Uh, you all know me. You've seen me before. But I always love the opportunity to come back up here and, and uh, preach every once in a while. Uh, as you know, we're going through our uh, trek through uh, Matthew, and we're ending up in Matthew 21 today, uh, starting in verse 12. Does anybody not have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible, please throw up your hands and uh, we'll get one to you. All right. <laughs> there you go. All right. Now John can follow along too. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's, before we start, let's, let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you that, uh, uh, that your word doesn't get stale. Uh, Lord, that it doesn't uh, have an expiration date. We thank you that more than 2,000 years after you inspired your word, uh, lives can still be changed by it. Um, hearts can still be moved by it. And uh, Lord, people can completely change the course of their lives uh, as a result of your word, and we thank you for that. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, this morning, as we go into your word, that each of us might find something new, that each of us might learn something new. Uh, Even though we may have read this passage many, many times before, uh, Lord, you can always make it fresh and always make it new, and we rely on you for that, Lord, not on me. And we thank you for this. In your holy name we pray, amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter uh, 21, starting at verse 12. Let's all uh, open up to that. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. So back in the late 90s when Tammy and I bought our house, uh, we had a lot of work to do on it. It was kind of a fixer-upper. And uh, shortly after we bought the house, Builder Square went out of business. And so they were having their going out of business sale. And one of the things that we still needed at that point was a shed because our little dinky one-car garage wasn't big enough to hold all of our stuff and it was already kind of bursting at the seams. So I took the back benches out of our minivan and made a cargo van out of it and headed off to Builder Square. So in our town, we're not allowed to buy nice, lightweight aluminum sheds. We have to put up uh, wood sheds. It's one of the regulations. You got to go down uh, four feet deep with the posts. They have to be in concrete, so they're as solid as a rock. So I go to Builder Square and bought a shed, not a big one, but big enough. Um, So I load up this cart, basically full of pre-cut pieces of lumber and everything, but then I have to get the roofing shingles too, and if anybody's ever tried to lift a a, a package of roofing shingles, they're really, really heavy. So I load all of this stuff out to where the minivan is, and I start throwing the stuff in the back of the minivan. And I notice that as I'm putting stuff in the back of the minivan, the back of the minivan is getting lower and lower, and lower. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't plan this out very well, did I? So I'm only about halfway, 
I've still got a half a cart full of stuff, and the back of the minivan is just getting lower and lower and lower, and I'm thinking, oh, man, what should I do? You know, should I leave the stuff here and make another trip? Um, but if I do that, you know, somebody might rip off the rest of it. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to load it all up. and just going to have to see what happens. So I loaded it all up, and man, the back end of the van was just practically scraping the ground. And I'm just really, really nervous. And I just, you know, I pray and, and hope that I can get it home without breaking the, the vehicle, right? And I'm driving. I feel like I'm doing a wheelie the whole way home because I'm looking up at the sky. And so, you know, I'm picturing in my mind, I'm thinking the shocks are just going to explode or my axle is going to break or my wheels are just going to pop on me. So I make it home, right? And I'm driving slow with the hazard lights on. So I make it home, pull up into the driveway, and I start offloading everything. And as I'm offloading all of this weight, the back of the minivan starts raising up again. And as I empty it, it gets right back to where it needs to be. I was using the minivan improperly. It wasn't designed to be used this way. And as a result, I almost broke it, right? But once I pulled all of that garbage out of there, once I pulled all of that dead weight out of there, I was able to put the benches back in and I was able to use the minivan for its intended purposes again. Well, this is kind of what Jesus is seeing in Matthew 21 as he's coming into the temple. Okay, he comes into the temple and he sees that the temple is not being used for its intended purpose. All right, let's take a look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So buying and selling pigeons was not in and of itself a sin. In fact, it was required because when the people came to the temple, they had to offer a sacrifice. And so people would come and they would buy their pigeons so that they could sacrifice them, so that they could follow the law and do what they were supposed to do. So buying and selling pigeons in and of itself, not a problem. Same thing with the money changers. When you came to the temple, you had to take whatever currency you had and you had to exchange it for the temple currency because the money that you had had the portrait of some guy on it, maybe Caesar. And it was considered to be defiling the temple if you took money that had the portrait of some heathen pagan guy on it and gave that to the temple. That was a no-no. So you had to exchange your money. And so when you gave your tithe, you would be able to give the temple currency instead of this bad currency that had somebody's portrait on it, okay? So none of this was bad in and of itself. The problem was that it was being done in the temple, okay? Instead of people entering the temple ready to worship, they were entering the temple area unprepared for worship. Imagine if we were to set up our ushers outside of the front doors there, and as you're coming up the walkway to enter church, you got one usher holding up the bulletin saying, programs here, programs two bucks a piece. And then you got another guy holding up Bibles saying, Bibles, 20 bucks a piece, genuine imitation leather. And then you got another guy holding up communion cups saying, two bucks, communion cups, pre-measured, pre-filled, 
sealed for your protection. It would be ridiculous, right? But yet this is what was going on in the temple. And this is what Jesus is walking into. Now, keep in mind that prior to verse 12, we learned last week from Pastor Lucas, prior to verse 12, when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, it was like a parade. They were honoring Jesus and they were shouting Hosanna. In fact, let's read it. Let's go back to verse 9 of chapter 21. It says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the people are actually honoring Jesus the way that he should be honored, which is really unique in the Bible. Usually they're not treating him the way that he should be treated, right? They don't normally treat him like a king when we read through the New Testament. But Jesus doesn't just soak it in and congratulate the people on getting it right for a change. What he does is he goes into the temple and he makes a scene. For everyone to see. This crowd is still with him, right? He's got a lot of eyes on him, and he makes this scene for everyone to see. <clears throat> now, when he knocks over these tables of the uh, money changers, and when he kicks out all of these people selling pigeons, he's not having a temper tantrum. He's not being overly emotional. There's a purpose to what he's doing. Let's take a look at verse 13. He said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, in this statement, Jesus is actually quoting two different Old Testament passages. Let's throw the first one up there. It comes from Isaiah chapter 56. Now, in Isaiah 56, Isaiah's talking about how the temple is available not only to Jews, but to anyone who loves God and loves his commands. Gentiles can come into the temple as well. They can offer sacrifices as well. And they can also find healing for that sickness called sin. It says, these I will bring to my holy mountain. He's talking about Gentiles here. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the temple is for Jews and non-Jews alike. And, by the way, outcasts are welcome. Non-Jews are welcome. Then Jesus goes from there into Jeremiah 7. Now, Jeremiah 7 is about evil in the land. And it says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Has this house become a den of robbers? So here Jesus, in the second half of his statement, he's saying that misusing the temple is at the same level as stealing, murder, committing adultery, lying, and worshiping false gods. Misuse of the temple is at that same level of sin. 
And he's basically telling these merchants that these sacrifices that you're offering to forgive sins, to spiritually heal you from your disease of sin, they're meaningless. They mean nothing because you are sinning, you intend to keep on sinning, you don't have a problem with it. And so therefore, you will remain infected with your sin and you are not healed. But then look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So the blind and the lame are healed, but the people selling the pigeons and exchanging the money are not. The desperate, the unclean people are healed, but the people promoting religion are not healed. Jesus drove out the merchants, and by doing that, he cleansed the temple, and he brought the temple back to its original purpose. And because he did that, people could once again come and worship and sacrifice the way that God intended them to do, without the distractions of buying and selling birds and exchanging money. They could come and they could focus on God the way that God had intended them to. Now, about a year and a half ago, I preached out of Haggai. And uh, you may remember that in Haggai, the people were um, rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. And they were discouraged because they knew that the temple that they were building wasn't going to be as big. It wasn't going to be as magnificent. It wasn't going to be as glorious. Uh, It wasn't going to be as ornate as the original temple that Solomon had built. And so they were discouraged by this, but God had a word of encouragement to them. Haggai 2.9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So God, at that time when they were building this temple, God said, you know what? Even though this temple that you're building is going to be smaller, it's not going to be as fancy, it's not going to be as ornate, this temple that you're building is going to be greater, is going to be more glorious than the original one. Do you know why? It's being fulfilled right here in Matthew chapter 21. The reason that the new temple is going to be more glorious is because Jesus is there. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Everything that the temple represents in terms of people being able to come to God to worship, people used to have to go to the temple. If they wanted to pray to God, the priests would have to do it for them. That was the only way you could approach God. But here now, through Christ, people can approach God. People can reach the Father. Through Christ, people find that sacrifice that they used to have to do at the temple. Everything that the temple represents is found in Jesus. Jesus is the temple. And now, the one greater than the temple is in the temple. And he is what makes the temple glorious, more glorious than the previous temple. Let's look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the children weren't just treating Jesus like a celebrity. They were saying, they were calling him the son of David. 
They were calling him the Messiah. Now imagine these teachers of the law, these, these um, professional religious people. I would imagine that they may not have wanted a Messiah, even if they believed Jesus. The text says that they saw the miracles, but I don't know, I don't read this anywhere, but it's kind of in my mind, I'm kind of thinking that they may not have even wanted a Messiah, at least not during their time on earth. Because think about it, these guys had reached the pinnacle of what they wanted to reach. They had memorized the entire Bible, and now they were the ones that people looked up to. They were the ones who had lifetime security, getting a, an endless paycheck from the tithes of the people who came to the temple. They wore the long robes. People bowed down to them. <clears throat> and now here comes this carpenter? Really? And the people are out throwing palm branches in front of him? And the people are out saying, Hosanna to the son of David, to this carpenter? Are you kidding me? After I memorized the entire Bible, don't they see my robes? Don't they see my tassels? They're supposed to be saying that to me, not to this guy. I would imagine that these teachers of the law, that these religious people probably had no room in their hearts for the Messiah. And that's why they opposed him. They just couldn't even consider the possibility that this carpenter might actually be the one that they are supposed to bow down to. Let's look at verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So these religious leaders, they're accustomed to getting respect. They're accustomed to people bowing down to them. They're used to being able to intimidate people. But Jesus is the temple. Jesus isn't going to be intimidated by these guys. In fact, not only is he not intimidated, but he's revving them up on purpose in the sight of all of these crowds for all of these eyes to see he insults these guys in the biggest way that you can insult a religious leader. He says, you guys don't even know the Bible. Have you not read? And then what does he do? Verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So when Jesus was done restoring the temple back to its original purpose, and when he was done teaching the people about the real meaning of the temple, he leaves and he goes to Bethany, which was only about two miles away. Now, we can imagine that there's probably a number of reasons why he may have gone to Jerusalem. One of them may have been symbolic, that he may have symbolically been saying, I'm going to separate myself from the temple. I'm going to separate myself from this fake religion that's going on here. But there may have been practical reasons for it as well. Bethany was only two miles away, and he had friends that lived there. Lazarus and his sisters, uh, Mary and Martha, lived. So, you know, it would have given him some place to spend the night. Probably Jerusalem would have been crowded at this time, so he wanted to escape the crowds. But I think there was another reason that he went to Bethany. And we find that in verse 18. You see, in verse 18, 
he comes to the rest of this teaching that he's, um, that he's doing here. This is the second half of his teaching, and he starts it on his way back from Bethany. So let's look, uh, starting at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith... And do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the next morning, Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem from Bethany. Apparently he hasn't had breakfast and he's hungry, and he sees this fig tree in the distance, and the fig tree has leaves on it. Now, one thing that I learned this week about fig trees, I didn't really know this before this week, is that if a fig tree has leaves on it, that means it should have fruit, because the fruit actually starts appearing on the fig tree before the leaves do. Now, the fruit may not be ripe yet, it may not be ready to eat yet, but there should be something there. If you see leaves, you should see some form of fruit on the tree. If there's no fruit on the tree when the leaves are there, then that means that season is shot. There are go- there's going to be no fruit on the tree that season. And so Jesus approaches this fig tree and he sees that there's no fruit on it and he curses the tree and the tree withers. Now, isn't it strange to see Jesus doing a miracle of destruction? Normally, we see Jesus healing, right? Or doing something good, something positive, turning water into wine. But here, Jesus is destroying a tree. The tree isn't a sinner. Why'd he do it? You know? Was he just grumpy because he was hungry and he was in a bad mood? No. Was he throwing a temper tantrum? I don't think so. Was he being overly emotional? I don't think so. Again, there's, there's a purpose for this. This is a teaching moment. Let's take a look at Hosea chapter 9. The first verse of, uh, the first half of, of verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So Hosea is comparing Israel to the first fruit of a fig tree, saying, Israel is something beautiful. The the fruit on the fig tree is beautiful. Then let's take a look at Joel chapter 1. Now this is talking about something different. Joel is talking about an invasion of locusts that's destroying the land because the people are mistreating the temple. Okay, Starting at verse 7, it says, It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig tree, It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O wine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, 
and apple, all of the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So Joel is also comparing Israel to a fig tree, but he's saying that because you have mistreated the temple, because you have misused the temple, you're not using the temple for its intended purpose, God infests the land with a plague of locusts, and everything is stripped bare. Now keep in mind that the term Israel doesn't just mean a nationality. The term Israel also means this religion. Israel refers to the descendants of Jacob, but it also refers to the special relationship that this people had with God. So it's one and the same. It's talking about the nationality. It's also talking about the religion. So now when Jesus curses the fig tree and causes it to wither, Jesus is continuing this analogy that was started by Hosea and by Joel. He's saying, look, this religion looks healthy, right? This religion has leaves on it from a distance. It looks like it's healthy, but it has no fruit, The temple, it's in good shape. The priests, they're not wearing robes that are tattered and torn and old. They look nice. It's full of people. People are coming. They're bringing their tithes. They're bringing their sacrifices. They're doing all of the things that they're supposed to do. They're doing all of the ceremonies that they need to do, all of the prescribed celebrations. Everything looks healthy. What's the problem? There's no fruit. People were buying and selling pigeons when they should have been honoring God. People were honoring men with long robes and tassels when they should have been honoring God. But the disciples, they didn't catch this connection just yet. They didn't understand that the fig tree represented Israel, that the fig tree represented this religion that was being misused and mistreated. Let's look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? So the disciples saw the miracle but they didn't say the mean, but they didn't see the meaning. They wanted to know how he did it. They weren't asking why he did it. So Jesus answers the question, but he doesn't answer the question that they asked. He answers a different question. Let's look at verse 21. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you. What does that mean? That means listen up. Pay attention because I'm about to tell you something that's important. It's important that you understand this. And then he tells his disciples that if you have faith, 
you will be able to curse fake religion, meaningless religion, and it will die. If you have faith, if you immerse yourself in me, rather than immersing yourself in memorized sayings that you just speak out of rote without even thinking about the words that you're saying, but if you instead immerse yourself in me, you will have fruit. But it must be faith without doubt. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, because doubt diminishes the faith, When you doubt, then all of these meaningless uh, religious rituals, you end up supporting these things instead of cursing them. In order to be able to curse the meaningless religion, you have to have faith without doubt. For all you math geeks out there, I came up with an equation. Faith minus doubt equals fruit. Faith with the doubt subtracted equals fruit. Or maybe we can say faith minus doubt equals real, true religion. Remember back in Matthew chapter 17 where the disciples were sent out by Jesus to go and heal people and to cast out demons. Now they were new to this. This was the first time they'd been sent out to do this. So they're all gung-ho and they're successful. They heal people. They cast out demons. But then they find themselves in a situation where they're unable to cast out these certain demons. Well, wait a second. We were able to cast out these demons. Why can't we cast out these demons? So Jesus comes and casts out the demons for them. And then later on they ask Jesus, why weren't we able to cast out these demons? Do you remember what Jesus' response was? He said, because of your little faith. Because you doubted. Now, doubt doesn't necessarily mean unbelief. Doubt can actually mean partial belief, can't it? We can doubt God by believing him to a certain extent and then believing in ourselves and trusting in ourselves for the rest. That is doubt. Yet, if we pray with a heart of faith, verse 22, rather than praying memorized prayers from rote, If our religion is coming from a desperate heart rather than coming from an obligation or a requirement, then we can have a fruitful relationship with God. And if we pray from faith without the doubt, minus the doubt, then our prayers will have authority. We can say to this mountain, get up and throw yourself into the sea and it'll do it. Really? Is that really true? Next month, I'm going to be going on a business trip to Anaheim. So I'm going to be along the, uh, the Pacific coast there, and I'm going to have some mountains there. So I think I'm going to go and point at a mountain, and I'm going to say, you, jump into the Pacific. You think it'll work? I'm thinking probably not. And if it doesn't work, does that mean that I didn't have enough faith when I told the mountain to jump into the Pacific? I don't think that's what what Jesus is getting at here. Notice in verse 21 that Jesus says, this mountain, right? 
But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So what does he mean by this mountain? Well, where were they? What were they talking about? They were talking about the temple. They were talking about this fruitless religion. And where was the temple? The temple was on the temple mount, right? He's talking about the mountain that holds the temple. He's talking about the temple mount. And what he's saying is, through faith in Christ, you can take this religion that you see up here on this mountain, you can take this phoniness that you see up in this mountain, and you can curse it, and it's going to be gone. It's going to be submerged. It's going to be somewhere where you can't even see it anymore. And it's going to be replaced by real religion. It's going to be replaced by fruit. And then he says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, what does that mean? Does that mean if I ask for a raise, I'll get it? And when I get that one, I think, hmm, wow, that really worked. I'm going to ask for another raise. And then you get it. Wow, that really worked. I'm going to ask for a bigger raise. And then you get it. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Again, take a look at the context uh, of what we're looking for. He's, he's looking for real religion. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about real religion that isn't phony. And so he's saying, whatever you ask with a heart of serving me, you will receive it. Whatever you ask with a desire to fulfill the calling that I gave you for your life, you're going to receive it. If I've given you a, a, a mission to accomplish, I will give you whatever you need to accomplish that mission. You just ask me for it, and you will receive it. The religious leaders, they looked the part, right? They had all of this religion. They had a form of godliness but denied its power. That verse comes from 2 Timothy. Let's throw that up on the board here. And think as we read this, think not only about the religious leaders, but think about us today as well. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Having the appearance of of godliness, but denying its power. Fruitless religion started off as sin, but it became a curse. Do you remember what the very first command was that God gave to man way back in Genesis chapter 1, 28? The very first command that God gave to Adam was be fruitful. And now Jesus is coming to the Temple Mount and he's pointing to the fake religion and he's saying, be 
unfruitful. Because the religion that Jesus accepts is the religion of those children who were crying out to the son of David when he was coming in. The religion that Jesus wants to see is the religion of those blind and the lame that came into the temple and wanted to be healed. The religion of the desperate and despised. This is the religion that Jesus accepts. And why is that? It's because it's real. Desperation is real. Desperation isn't memorized. It's not something that you do because it's a requirement. Desperation is where you are. When you understand where you are and you realize that God is everything. God is everything that I need. That's desperation, and that's what leads us to real religion. So that leads us to the question, what does our religion look like personally? And I'm not so much talking about us as a church. I'm talking about us as individuals. What does our religion look like? Is it real, or are we fulfilling what we feel the requirements are? How many people do you think have spoken the Lord's Prayer because those are the magic words and that's how I get to heaven? Right? As long as I speak the sinner's prayer, I'm good to go. As long as I attend church on Sunday, that's one of the requirements, I'm good to go. As long as I get baptized, as long as I take communion, I'm good to go. I've fulfilled the requirements, but Jesus is saying no. That is fake religion. That isn't the kind of religion that I'm looking for. Jesus said, truly I say to you. That means it was important. Listen up, pay attention. I've got something important to tell you. Faith minus doubt equals fruit. Faith minus doubt equals real religion. It's not quite as creative as equals MC squared. I'm not quite that smart. But I think it's probably more powerful, don't you? And then what does Jesus do? He passes the torch to the disciples. He says, okay, you saw me curse the fig tree and it withered, but you can do this. He passes it along to the disciples. And by extension, we're his disciples as well, right? He passes it on to us. And he says, you also not only can do what you saw me do, but you can point to that temple mount, you can point to that fake religion, you can curse it, and it's going to be swallowed up by the sea so that nobody can see it anymore. And it's going to be replaced by real religion. Curse the fake stuff and embrace the real stuff. And that is my prayer for us as we embark on a new year, as individuals and as a church, that we might learn to pray with faith and without doubt so that we can see fruit, so that we can see people becoming saved, so that we can see people becoming baptized because that is the kind of religion that God cherishes. I'd like to call the worship team to come up, and, and while they're getting ready, let's, let's bow for uh, prayer. Lord, we thank you that um, 
you are not a religion. We thank you, Lord, that you are a living person. We thank you, Lord, that you are the glorious creator. We thank you that we don't have to rely on a physical building in order to find forgiveness of sins, that we don't have to rely on a physical building to be able to come to you to worship, but, Lord, that you've given us that authority within us, in our hearts. And I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you can change us, that even if we are experiencing this false, fake religion with memorized sayings and rituals and just setting our alarm clock for a certain amount of time on, on Sunday morning. We thank you, Lord, that all of this meaningless stuff can be overcome. Lord, that through your power, through your spirit, we can curse these things and find real religion, find real faith, find real fruit. Lord, we thank you for that. In your holy name we pray. Amen.